Israel is that when they enter the promised land, they're finally to come to two mountains, Gerizim and Ebal, and they're to take half the tribes and put them on one mountain, half the tribes on the other. And then there's this liturgical, responsive thing that happens. One side starts reading out the blessings of those who, who are in the covenant community and are faithful. And then the other side are the curses. And then Moses begins to unpack the curses of covenant infidelity. And so he comes down to verse 45, and here it is. And I just want you especially to pay attention when we get to verse 47. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of Yahweh your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve Yahweh your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom Yahweh will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Notice the the central piece of serving the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. And so now we turn to Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. So we pick up right where we left off. We're doing a series through Colossians, getting on with the gospel. So we're at Colossians 3, picking up at verse 12. And verse 12, of course, flows out of verses 5 to 11, which flows out of chapter 2 and 1 and all that stuff. So you know there's a connection here. So verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. To God the Father through him. What I've read and summarized for you in Deuteronomy and what I've read to you in Colossians, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. You, Lord Jesus, have made us God's chosen ones. You have made us your holy and beloved ones. What an amazing endowment you have bestowed on us. And so as God's chosen, we beg you to give us hearts that are ready to receive, ears ready to hear, attention ready to be focused, and lives ready to be changed. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide there. If you're visiting and you need to catch up or you've been on world travels like some of you, and you need to catch up, you can go to heritagepca.org. Yeah, that's right, heritagepca.org, go to media, and you can see the sermons, and you can click on those and listen to the past sermons. So, My friends, Oliver Twist, 
Charles Dickens' book, Oliver Twist. And there was a movie in the 1970s that really was very important to me because I had to go see it at 10 and it changed my life. Not. But anyways, it was a great movie. So you get a chance to see that 70s version. So Oliver Twist is a very interesting story. There's a, a young, a very young orphan who ends up being run out of an orphanage. Right? I love that line. I love to use that line at fellowship meals. May I have some more, please? Right? It gets me run out too. So, But it got, he was run out of an orphanage and run off into the grips of a ragtag band, band of thieves and shrews. If you know what shrews are. Where they had a whole social order. They had a whole social order. Where thieving and pickpocketing and violence and scraping for food and scraping for love and brutality all seemed normal. And so Oliver Twist falls into the hands or falls in with the likes of Fagan and Bill Sykes and Nancy and the rest of the gang. And yet this orphan ends up, by hook and crook, ends up in a family. A family of wealth and a family of with a different set of manners and customs. And to everyone's surprise, Oliver actually belonged to that family and is the inheritor of that wealthy estate. And so with all the ups and all the downs, the story ends happily, at least for Oliver. It doesn't end happily for Nancy or Bill Sykes or Fagan and some others. Now, the tale is somewhat unrealistic. I mean, here's a young boy who learned the habit of pickpocketing and all the ways of thievery and so forth, and Oliver quickly fits into his new environment without any relapse to old learned habits. That makes it a little unrealistic. And yet, the story actually pictures for us something very much about the new life that we have been given, that Paul has been referring to throughout this whole letter. And so to pull together these chapters up to this point, the gospel gift, chapter 1, the gospel gift brings us gospel liberty, chapter 2, 1 through chapter 3, verse 4. The gospel gift brings us gospel liberty, which causes some gospel leaving. That was the verses 5, chapter 3, verses 5 through 11 last week. And it launches gospel living. That's chapter 3, 12, really to the end of the letter. Launches gospel living. And notice that this gospel living then begins with our being God's chosen. That's verses 12 and 13. I hope you have your Bibles open to follow along here. Verses 12 through 13. Now, we've already heard and saw when we were looking at chapter 3, verses 5 through 11, the paragraph before this one, that we're already leaving behind what has already been put away from us. We talked about the, you, uh, you have put off, so put off, right? So we're, we're uh, putting away what has already been put away from us, and we're moving onward toward what has already been put on us. And so you have put on, put on, that present tense and the past tense. So I think a good analogy of this is, you know, there's several of us who are going to have some adult children getting married this year, right? So it's a great illustration. But I know when I do weddings, at the very end of the wedding, you know, after all the vows and everything, I get to tell the groom, okay, you may now kiss the bride, and after they slobber on each other and all those things, right? Then I get to turn them around, 
and I get to make the public proclamation that is true of them. I now introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. Mickey Mouse. Yes, yay. (laughs) It's true of them, right? That's what all this was about. It's true of them. The declaration says this is true of them. But you know, especially if you're married, they ain't got any idea what's coming, right? The rest of their life is living into what's true of them. That's this put off and put on language. You have put off, you have put on, so keep on putting off and keep on putting on. It's the, it's the declaration at marriage and then the, uh, at the wedding and then the rest of the marriage. I hope that illustration helps you to see the connection between those sets of verbs. Therefore, with this gospel reality undergirding un, and undressing us, put off, undressing us, then redressing us, put on. We come then to verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen, holy and beloved. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Notice that we're to put on what's already true about us. We're to put on a whole new way of being what we are. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We're to put on this whole new set of traits Uh, of traits that counter that old lifestyle and life habit vices in verses 5 through 8. It counters those old life habits and life vices of verses 5 through 8. It's the polar opposite. Paul says you're already, by grace alone and Christ alone, holy and beloved. None of this is about becoming God's chosen. None of this is about becoming holy and beloved you're already there how do you know because the father qualified you you've already by grace alone and christ alone been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son you're already god's chosen god's holy and beloved ones and so paul says here live like it right live like it And here's what living like it looks like. It's these traits in in this verse. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Now you have to understand that just like in verse 5, the the vices listed there are broad categories. These are also broad categories. If you were to slice them real finely and stick them on that glass shelf and shove that under the microscope and look in, you would find all kinds of wriggly things alive in there that make up compassionate hearts, for example. And so compassionate hearts, the idea of actually emoting with, having passion with another, okay? It's what Paul says in Romans 12. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Don't fix them. When they're weeping, don't sit there and try to fix them. Most times you just need to cry with them. And when they're rejoicing, it may not be your cup of tea what they're rejoicing about, but get in there and do a tap dance with them. Right? I mean, that's really important. So it's the idea of compassion. It's just a little piece. There's more to compassionate hearts than just the name itself. And so all of these traits then are broad categories that he mentioned. And all of these then crowd into the next trait because all of these strengthen the next trait. Listen again. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. 
And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. All those other traits in verse 12 are all strengthening this next trait, bearing with one another. In fact, you could almost translate the Greek as putting up with one another. Sounds like marriage terms. I mean, can you, could you imagine being Anna and putting up with me? All right, you know, I mean, it's just that kind of thing. Bearing with one another, the difficulties, putting up with each other, not walking around easily offended. Right, putting up, bearing with one another. And if you have a complaint, forgive. Now, this is why this is so important, and it's important throughout history, but it's definitely important in the 21st century right now, but it's just important with humans, because humans have a special skill, and our special skill is we love to be offended, we love to carry resentment around like a tic-tac. Anybody know what a tic-tac is, one of those little sucker things you suck on? We love to suck on resentment, and we love to savor it and hold it in our mouths, and just let it go back and forth on our tongue because we love the feeling. It makes us feel morally superior. I've been offended and I have divine right to be offended and I have a divine right to demand my pound of flesh from you. Right? We love being offended. If you don't believe me, just get on social media. Done. You'll be sold. We love to be offended. And notice that the gospel says to us, no, that's not the Jesus way. To walk around being offended. Spit out the resentment pill. Spit it out. And put up with one another. Caring for one another. Bearing each other's burdens. Dealing with each other's problems. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. Yeah, but pastor, you don't know what they did to me. Well, I may not. And some, and I know this, some of you have been wronged really horribly over the years. I mean, we're talking outright moral scandal. I get it. Well, you don't know, well, okay. But we still have this directive. We're not to be carrying it around and making it our identity. Right? It's not who we are. And so notice what happens here. That what Paul drives at is this common principle. Coming to recognize that no one has ever wronged you as much as you have wronged God. No one, I, I know, I know it was bad. I know that was bad. Whatever it was that happened. But no one has wronged you as much as you have wronged God. And yet what does God do with us? He forgives us. Now he doesn't just let it go. We, there's changes we have to make and all that stuff, right? But he forgives us. And so set free by God's grace in Christ, then we are no longer submitting to the elemental spirits of the world. We're no longer conforming and complying with the regulations and rules of the domain of darkness that fosters things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. It means that by grace alone and Christ alone, we're now moving in a new direction. We're now moving in a new way, a new set of lifestyle and life habits. 
They consist of compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. And lo and behold, it becomes a new way of being a society. It becomes a new way of being a society, a new way of being human. So to make things even more emphatic, Paul goes on to show us that we what we're to be, that we're to be God's lovers. God's lovers. That's verses 14 and most of verse 15. God's lovers. Notice how verse 14 comes. And above all these, put on love. There's the put on language again. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all these, as important as all of those traits are back in verse 12 and 13, as important as they are, and they are all extremely important, yet Paul says, above all these, put on love. That tells you this is big stuff. Dear friends, do I need to say it again? Well, yes, I do. Because we're pushing hard against a society that is pushing hard against us. We're pushing hard against a culture that loves to demean and divide groups. A culture that loves to deride and disparage other cohorts. A culture that loves to foster competition between different factions. And when that's out there, that's just the way it is out there. But what's grievous is when it starts to come in here. And notice that the whole point then is that should never show up in here in God's sacred society. And so Paul says inside God's sacred society, we push back against those trends by putting on love for one another. In fact, he goes on to make it even more clear, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love binds all those traits together in perfect harmony like John Hawk's cargo strap. And John's not here to enjoy this today, whatever. So this is a small cargo strap. Everybody know what a cargo strap is, right? So we were at Carnegie and there we are. We load up uh, John's trailer at the end. We put all this heavy stuff on his trailer and it's, I mean, it's heavy. It's not coming off his trailer because it's too heavy. But it could. And so what does John Hawk do? He pulls out his cargo strap that had the hooks on it. We put it on both ends and we crank that thing down. Nothing's coming off that trailer. If it comes off that trailer, John's dead and everybody around him is dead. That's all. That's how bad it was, right? But it bound all those pieces together. Love binds all these traits together in what kind of harmony? Perfect harmony. Notice how Paul's putting that. And so loving one another is a top drawer issue. You hear me say it, and I won't stop saying it because it's all over the New Testament. And we need to hear it again and again. Loving one another is the primary issue. It's a top drawer issue in all the New Testament. Love above, above all these put on love. Which includes verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Now we hear verse 15 and we immediately think that's referring to me and my own personal internal peace. Right? 
That's how that often gets used. But that's not what Paul is saying. Notice verse 15 is not about me and Jesus. It's about we and Jesus, which blesses me inside the we. I don't know if that helps you, but it sure works for me. Notice the language. Do you see the peace language in verse 15? Are you looking at verse 15? Notice the we and Jesus of this whole thing. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in where? One body. This is not about your own personal peace. Your personal peace will come through with it. But this is talking about the we and Jesus peace. You're binding it all together with love because it binds together in perfect harmony. And that's where you see the peace of Christ beginning to rule. And I'm telling you, as I've said before, in a stormy world like we live in now, the one place that should never be stormy is the sacred society. It should become the shelter where those being battered and bruised by the social tsunamis and hurricanes come crawling in, come walking in, come limping in, and say, finally, I have some rest with these people who are all about Jesus. Did you hear the song, the part that we sang today? I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down, O weary one, lay down your head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, so weary, worn, and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. And as they come into the shelter, they find us at peace because of Christ. And they find rest in Jesus. So God's chosen who are God's lovers are also God's thankful. And that's the rest of verse 15 all the way to verse 17. I tried to emphasize it in the way I read it. But you can't miss it. And the end of verse 15, that last sentence of verse 15, all the way to verse 17, how many times does Paul tell us to be thankful? Three times. Right? He says in verse 15, and be thankful. And just in case you didn't hear that, Paul then says in verse 16, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then just in case you were sleeping during that part of the verse... He then says it again in verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Which actually fits what Paul has been saying since at least chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with what? Oh, you need to memorize some verses. Abounding with thanksgiving. Chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. This has been one of Paul's major themes in this letter. God's thankful. And notice that this thankfulness in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. This thankfulness is wrapped up, verse 16, in liturgy. And life, verse 17. Liturgy, verse 16. Life, verse 17. And here, my friends, it seems to me is a good healthy biblical pattern. What we do in worship, verse 16, 
nurtures and cultivates what we are to do in our walk, verse 17. Liturgy should shape life, and life flows back into the liturgy. So let me break verse 16 and 17 down. If if you're staying with me, then this is where I'm at now. Verse 16 and 17, stay with me. Notice then, first off, liturgy. Think about how he puts it here. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in an age when literacy was far rarer than it is now. When he wrote this, maybe about 30% or less had, were literate. And so where would they have come to have heard the word of Christ that they could have dwell in them richly? Where? Anybody? Church. Right? Because Probably because that was the only place they could afford it because of all the gifts they could finally afford copies of the Bible, which would have been huge. Right? And that's where they would have heard the word that they are allowed to dwell in them richly. Now that doesn't preclude by the way, your own reading of scripture and so forth. But it's here. As you hear the word read extensively, right? Shame on our sister churches that read one verse of the whole assembly, right? Where you hear the word read extensively, you hear it expounded. Here you can let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you're together with God's loving loved ones, God's beloved. But notice that he goes further, and he goes on into the mutuality of encouragement. He talks about teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And that's kind of an outworking of this liturgy, and one of the most immediate things you begin to see. It's just like when you walk out of Sunday school. I watch this all the time, when the adult class is over, for example. Or when you meet in your care groups. Or when you assemble in your Bible studies, whether in person or by Zoom. Did I cover all of them? Yeah, okay, got it. All right. And there... You unburden your hearts to one another. It's there, and I know this goes on, I've I've heard it. I've seen it, I've been part of it. You unburden your hearts to one another, and then you build each other up from the word of Christ, helping one another to have a better sense and a better perspective. So this verse is reminding us that we need to be intentionally together. We need to be intentionally engaged, intentionally interacting, intentionally applying, and intentionally praying. It's an immediate outgrowth of liturgy. Usually after church, some of you know this, a lot of you know this, after church, like nobody wants to leave, which is great, right? It's wonderful. And after about 30 minutes, somebody will inevitably come up to me and say, I bet you wish these people would leave. No! I've been in a church where nobody stayed five minutes after the service. No, I'm glad you're here. Because what you're doing oftentimes is you're learning from each other, you're learning about each other, you're caring about each other, you're praying for each other. Sometimes I see arms going around shoulders when there's heart, broken hearts. That's what Paul's referring to, and that's the immediate outworking of liturgy. Right there, you're caring for one another. So that's important. So let me just put a little get, dig in here. So don't plan your lunch for 1215. Make it around 12.30, 1 o'clock, so you can spend time. Spend time with one another, enjoying one another, encouraging and exhorting one another. Now, I got it if you've got diabetes and you need to go home and eat before you get your shots. I'm not talking about you, but spend some time together. Continue to do that. It's beautiful. It broadcasts 
gorgeous things to anybody walking by or that's visiting. I've heard it more than once. Man, you've got something good going on at that church. That's huge. And that's right there in that passage in Colossians. But it's the outgrowth of liturgy. But then Paul, sticking with liturgy, brings up the significance of corporate singing. The significance of corporate singing. Singing psalms. So out of the Old Testament, singing the psalms. Hymns, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. My friends, God's thankful people want to sing. God's thankful people want to sing. They want to sing God's praises. They want to sing and they want to musically do what David said. We heard in the call to worship from Psalm 40. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. And my friends, congregational singing was an important mark of the Reformation. So around, who knows, maybe 1,000 A.D., somewhere in there, slowly, by accident, more likely than anything else, music left the church, and it went to the paid professionals, the priests and the monks. The music style probably got more intense. People became, uh, because of the social situation, were far more illiterate. And so the music left the church. Congregation would come, and they would just stand there. They didn't have pews, by the way. Be glad you have pews. They didn't have pews. They would just stand there. And they wouldn't know the songs. The only people singing were the monks and the priests at the front. And so what becomes a, an accidental habit finally becomes like code. Like everybody has to do it this way. So then come the reformers. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Oclopatius, Zwingli, Martin Lutzer, uh, Cranmer. They came and they said, hey, wait. The Bible talks about... Me- a congregational singing. And then they started reading the early church fathers and they said the early church pastors were talking about how the congregation sang. We need to restore congregational singing to the church. It's a mark of the Reformation that you have congregational singing. And so, unfortunately, we're living in an age, and it's by accident, I I know it's by accident, that more and more the singing is leaving the congregation and is going to the paid professionals. And you know that because the music is beginning to move outside of most people's musical scales, but you can tell it when the music leader says these words. Come on, sing with me now! Right? That means nobody's singing. And after a while, you begin to look around, you realize there's almost nobody singing. Congregational singing is part of the Reformation. Don't let anyone ever, by accident or any other way, take away the congregational singing. It's what we do. It's part of what we are as God's people who have put on these chosen ones who who are holy and beloved, who are putting on compassionate hearts and so forth. What we're doing, we want to sing. So it's just a personal rule of thumb I use at gauging a, a congregation's healthiness. Do they sing? And when there's no singing, I begin to wonder. Sing. And my friends, if you ever ever from the hospital, as CJ would put it, your singing pastor will show up. And I'll pull out my little old Methodist hymn book that I bought that's like 80 years old. And I'm going to sing a hymn to you. It's amazing how often 
you know those words and you sing them and how much it helps you. The Tuesday before Ting died, she's no longer really taking phone calls. She's just physically unable, no energy. And so I thought, well, I can't go to Mississippi. I guess I could, but I can't go to Mississippi and go pray and sing with her. So I recorded myself singing the first and last verse of uh, Be Still My Soul. And I sent it to her daughter. I said, here, whenever she's awake, can you play this for her? This is just for her. She goes, okay. And the next morning, she was awake enough that Nicole wrote me back and she said, Ting smiled from ear to ear. There's nothing like us singing. And that's what Paul's driving at here. Here's what thankful people do. God's thankful do. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so by further than the reception of the word of Christ, the encouraging of one another, the congregational singing is all textured, did you notice, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then comes verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, first off, I have to say this, that doing something in the name of the Lord Jesus, I mentioned this not long ago, a while back, but let me just say it again. Doing something in the name of the Lord Jesus does not mean you're out there going to Brahms, buying your two gallons of milk, saying, I buy this milk in the name of Jesus. Right? It's not that kind of stuff, right? That's not what he's about. So what is it to do something in the name of Jesus? It means you're doing it in submission to Jesus. You're doing it under the authority of Jesus. So, you know, stealing as a way of life is not doing it in the name of Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Dealing drugs is not in the name of Jesus. But how about working hard? If, you, if you're able to work, working hard to take care of your family. Yeah, that's in the name of Jesus. What about um, remaining chaste? Remaining chaste in your singleness and in your marriedness. Oh yeah, that's in the name of Jesus. He directed us to. That's what he means. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. With thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. And so Paul, next week, as we'll see next week, picking up at verse, uh, verse 18, Paul will then take this principle and he will describe for us gospel families, starting at verse 18, which we'll look at next week. But for now, take this passage to heart. If you have truly received Christ Jesus as he is freely offered in the gospel, then you have already put off those old ways of being civil, those old habits of being society, those old reactions and actions of being human, and you have already put on new ways by grace alone in Christ alone. New ways. And it was all because of the Father's gracious action and all because of who Jesus is and what he has done, is doing, and will do for you. And so then continue, continue in the renewing grace of God who is renewing you in knowledge after the image of your creator, Jesus, back up in verse 10. Continue putting off and putting on. And what does that look like? Verses 12 through 17. 
is a good place to start. And so then, finally, gauge, gauge your involvement with one another by this passage. Together, we grow in maturity. When Paul said, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ, that happens as we're in this together with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, putting up with one another, forgiving but, of all, but above all, loving each other, which binds all those traits together. And dear friends, look forward to being together, to getting together, especially and most pointedly around the word, the sacraments and prayer, which includes prayer, which includes congregational singing. And let this inside the sacred society way of being shape them are out there way of being. It really is we and Jesus. And in the we is the me. Let's pray. Lord, you've taught us that without love, whatever we do is worth nothing. Send your spirit and pour into our hearts your most excellent gift, which is love, that true bond of peace and of all virtues, without which, without which, Whoever lives is really dead before you. So, Lord, we pray. May we thrive. May we continue to grow in what you have made us to be. May we be people known for compassionate hearts and humility, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. People known for putting up with one another and forgiving one another. And above all, loving one another, letting the peace of Christ dwell in us richly. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us your own and made us your chosen, holy beloved ones. In Jesus' name.